Welcome to the Wealth Time Freedom Podcast, where we decode the psychology of money, uncover the principles of personal finance, and learn how to put them into practice. This is all about escaping the rut race so we can win the game of life. It's personal finance, but with a big old dollop of personal development. If you're looking for answers, looking for motivation, or looking for help, you're in the right place. Our mission for this channel is to help you get as far as you can on your own. And then if you want to go further and faster, we can help with that too. Let's dive in. Hey guys, it's Terry here and welcome to a slightly different episode than what you're used to from us. I'm going to be talking with a very special guest and this guest is Matt, also known as the Aussie Firebug. Now, if you don't know who the Aussie Firebug is, I would highly encourage you to check out Matt's blog and his podcast. It's basically a bit of a record of Matt's journey towards financial independence. And what I love about Matt's story and Matt himself is that He's a normal guy, he's 30 years old, just about to get married, but he is absolutely proving that early retirement is within anyone's grasp, and you don't need to live like a hermit to do it. Matt is, by his own estimate, somewhere between two to three years away from choosing whether or not he actually needs to work ever again, and he has done that not by completely depriving himself, but being really super intentional, very mindful about how he spends his money. It's not to say that he hasn't gone too far at times. He definitely talks about that, and we discussed that in the episode. But he's found this balance now with himself and his partner where they are basically worry-free. And what I love about Matt's approach is he doesn't really claim to be an expert. He's just on his journey, and his podcast and blog, it really does take you along for the ride. He talks about what he learned from his time in property, investing in property, why he's shifted more towards shares. And he's probably one of the more balanced voices you'll ever hear in the finance space. Usually people tend to have a bias, but what I love about Matt's approach is he's been absolutely committed to the end goal, but he's been very open-minded about how he approaches and achieves that. And his story and his podcast, his blog really bring you along on the ride. And he basically has nothing to gain. He just, he just tells the truth. So not many people know it, but it was actually the Aussie Firebugs podcast that inspired Ryan and I to actually get started with the Passive Income Project. I tell the story a little bit in the episode, but we said, look, if we ever get past one season and we're still going and people are actually listening, then we're going to do whatever we can to get the Aussie Firebug on the show. And look, it took about four months going back and forward and Matt took a long time, but trust me, it is well worth the wait because in this episode, we really dive deep. We go into what are various biggest influences when it comes to money. We talk about some of the biggest mistakes people tend to be making when they start to talk about and think about investing. And then we look at you know what did cause that shift from more of a property bias towards more of a bias in shares and why the debate between shares and investing in property is a ridiculous debate. We also touch a little bit on how he works with his partner to reach their goals, some of the choices they've been able to make because of their ability to manage their money well, and what it's like to know that money will never, ever be a worry. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed my chat with Matt, one of the most down-to-earth people that I've met in this space, and I'm sure you'll get just as much value from it as I did. All right. So Matt, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, mate. My pleasure, Terry. <laughs> hey, um, I need to say a massive thanks to you as well, because it's actually your podcast, uh, Aussie Firebug, that inspired Ryan and I to start our podcast. I'm glad to hear that, mate. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a funny sort of story. I, was, I don't know how I came across it, and I'm not even sure what episode it was, but started listening to it and 
you know, we'd been talking about doing a little uh, podcast or something like that for a little while. And I was just listening to your story. You were talking about your experiences, the things you were learning, things you were looking at. And do you know the feeling that I got from your podcast was just such a um, really positive, optimistic kind of view and a real growth mindset, real learning journey. And I was like, oh man, I want to do this for people as well. This is so good. And so I sent it to Ryan. Ryan listened to it. He's like, we've got to do it. <laughs> so, uh, mate, massive thank you for inspiring us to get going because it has really helped us getting a podcast out there as well. No, nah, no worries, mate. I, I remember a, a major inspiration for me was a, a US podcaster called The Mad Scientist. Yep. And uh, basically, I loved, he was sort of my financial inspiration. It was similar age, similar um, job and similar the progress that we were making financially. He was a little bit further ahead than me, but I could sort of track him. So he, when he started a, a podcast and I listened to him, I had sort of got inspiration. So I'm, I'm stoked to hear that, you know, I've inspired others. So that's really cool. Absolutely, mate. Well, that was my next question, basically. So what was made, what made you start the podcast? It was Mad Finances, was it? Yeah. So there was a few reasons I started the podcast, but a main one was, it was basically... So I, you know, I'm on this journey towards financial independence to retire early and we can get into what that means because it means different things to different people. But basically there is a fire culture or a community out there that originated in the US as a lot of these communities do. And there was a guy called Mr. Money Moustache who's, he was the first fire blog, fire specific blog that I read. And he's, he's got a really famous and really popular blog. But then there was another guy and there there was a few US podcasters and uh, bloggers, but there was a guy specifically, like I mentioned, Brandon at the Mad Fientist that I just seemed to click with and I just seemed to relate to him more than I related to others. And he had a podcast and I love listening to it because I'm just, I consume that medium really well. Like a lot of people watch YouTube videos, which I definitely watch YouTube videos as well. Some people listen to podcasts and I think even fewer people read blogs. And I was definitely one of them that I, I got into podcasts early on. I'm, I'm, I subscribed to a whole bunch and his podcast was awesome. And I love listening to it and I love reading his blog articles, but they were all US centric and they were all based in the US, which a lot of this, a lot of finance and financial independence retire early content is very transferable no matter where you live in the world. It's, it's relatable, you know, savings and investing you can do anywhere, but there was specifics that Brandon the mad scientist was writing about that only made sense from a US perspective, especially with regards to taxes and Roth and IRA accounts and stuff like this. It probably means uh, nothing to most of the audience listening, but <laughs> it's basically their, their version of the super system. Yep. So I started Googling financial independence, retire early Australia. And there was a lot of people writing about financial independence in Australia, but I wanted specific information about people looking to retire early. And at the time that I was trying to get this content, which was back in like 2013, 2014, there really wasn't anyone um, writing about it or uh, doing podcasts about it. So I made the website, Aussie Firebug, back in 2015. I'm pretty certain that I was the first Australian fire blogger on the scene, which right now in 2020, there's just an ex- there's been an explosion of talent and there's heaps of fire bloggers out there now, and there's multiple fire podcasts out there right now, which is awesome. But I started the podcast basically because I wanted Australian-based content specific to people in Australia trying to reach fire. 
So I, th- I thought, let me just start this podcast and see what happens. I wanted really smart people to critique my strategy. That was a, a big point as well, yep. because I knew that I wasn't, I didn't know everything. And I thought if I put these ideas out in the US forums, like people won't know what superannuation super is and they won't know specific tax laws in regards to Australian tax laws. So let me make this podcast. Let me see if I can get some people listening and hopefully some smart people can sort of tell me what I'm doing wrong. And I just wanted to see what I could do to, to start a bit of a community in the Australian space in, in regards to Aussies all getting together. And there's a yep. few other reasons, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. But those, those were the main ones. Yeah, the main reasons that I started the podcast. For the last five years, we've worked with over 600 couples and we've helped them to get in sync, play to each other's strengths and start making the big money moves. And for the first time ever, we are lifting the lid on everything we've learned. We're running a live online webinar. And in this webinar, we're going to share exactly how our new money method works and how you can use it to find your financial fast mode and fund your big goals and dreams. If you're ready to get beyond learning and start winning together as a team, all you need to do to secure your spot is hit that link in the episode description below or go to cashflowco.com.au forward slash new money method. And hey, if you're coming along, don't forget to bring your better half. Yeah. And how's it, how's it going? Like I know for my sense is it's really sort of taken off. It's really in Australia. It's something that, you know, even our members, it's something that so many people are starting to cotton onto now the idea that hang on, like, hang on, you can retire earlier. So it's almost like there's been this cultural assumption that you work and then um, you get old and fat and then you get to retire. <laughs> and uh, people are starting, I think it's our generation starting to go, but hang on, really? Is there another way? Is, yeah. is it, have you found the same thing? Is it really, because for me, I've been shocked at how quickly, you know, I'm sure our podcast isn't anywhere near as um, well listened to as yours, but, but how fast we got a listenership, if that's a word. <laughs> yeah, nah, well, so the concept of fire, like I've really got to pay homage to the people that started the community or the original idea, because like I said, the idea of financial independence has been around for as long as money has existed. Yep. But the idea to that you're able to retire early, and this is where I think there's a key distinction between financial independence and FIRE, which is mm-hmm. reaching financial independence and retiring early. And this might mean different things to different people, but this is how I interpret it. Financial independence, pretty much everyone knows what that means. If, if they're financially inclined, you have enough assets that generate a passive income that means you get to a point where your portfolio is throwing enough money off that you can replace your income so you don't have to work. Yep. And the key difference in my mind is the people that there's plenty of people that reach financial independence but don't use that freedom that financial independence allows you to have to do anything with it. Like they might work at a job that yeah, they don't particularly love, it's okay. And they might be a good saver and they might be pretty cluey with investing and they reach financial independence, but then they sort of don't know what to do or they, they just sort of, they're on the hamster wheel of life and they're just in the rat race anyway. And they just live out the rest of their life and, and that was it, right? So what I thought, think the difference is the, the retire early part of fire. And I don't even really like the word retire because there's a certain uh, connotation associated with that word that means you don't ever work again, mm. which is not true mm. for a hundred percent, a hundred percent of people in the fire community yep. never want to get to financial independence so they can 
sit by the pool and sip pina coladas all day for the rest of their life. I have not <laughs> met, I, and I get a fair am- amount of emails like from people um, asking about fire and you know what they want to do and everything like that. Not one person wants to do that. Work yeah. is it is a staple of a human's life. You need to be able to do work. It's like a, an absolute pillar. But the difference is you, you want to be doing work that's meaningful to you. And I think that's the, that's the thing that financial independence can grant you. you. You need to draw a line in the sand. And this is the key distinction I'm trying to make. Once you reach financial independence, if you're already working in an industry or a job that you love, fantastic. You are in the minority of people, a heavy minority, because I think if you took away the financial incentive, incentive of a job, how many people would, would go to work tomorrow? Like maybe 5% of people. I don't know, but like a lot of people, primary reason that they go to work is to earn money. I know that's the reason that I go to work is to yep. pre- predominantly earn money. Yep. There's parts of my job that I definitely like, but would I do it for free? Mm, maybe some parts, but probably not all of it. Yep. So when you reach financial independence, that's when you like, and I'm doing um, talking marks with my hands, but the, the listeners can't, can't see it, obviously. Yep. But you want to transition to work that's meaningful, meaningful to you. And that doesn't necessarily mean you earn money from it. So mm. it could be volunteering or it could be earning money. It doesn't matter. But you retire from being a corporate drone or being a wage slave and you transition into a career that you or into a job that you love doing and that that to me is is the difference and when when mr money mustache first started blogging about hey i quit my job when i was 30 and i started doing other work and he actually did make some money on the side doing other things but the key distinction is he was doing them for the love of doing them not because he was after a financial incentive. And that's, it's a key distinction there. And when he started doing that, it, people started reading and it it was like, is this guy just talking a whole bunch of bullshit or is this actually doable for the vast majority of people without an inheritance, without earning $150,000 a year, without winning tax lotto or something like that. And the, the, the closer you looked at it, the, the closer or the, the, the realization hit that majority of people in a first world country, this is a realistic option for majority of people. You just got to, it's more of a mindset thing and we can get into that later, but that those sort of people, the, the US crowd definitely sort of sparked the fire, if, if I can say that. And it, more people started reading it and then the, the community's just blown up over the last like six or seven years because more people are understanding that it, it's it's actually possible. And I've definitely seen that with my audience and my podcast that so many people are, are realizing now that um, reaching financial independence at an early age and realistically transitioning to, to a new career that potentially doesn't pay you any money is possible. And, yeah. and I think that's been a, a huge reason why we're seeing the FIRE community explode. Absolutely. And if I can just talk to my own experience for a second, yeah, you know, when, when I did get invested, I didn't, I didn't build a huge passive income quickly but i built enough to kind of really make me think hang on like i bought back a substantial amount of my time and when i was doing that transition from sport and and the role of money in that and i actually spent about six months not having to work and it was actually very hard it was very difficult time all i was doing was doing my mba and it's not enough doesn't fill your day 
And uh, so I, at the start, I thought, this is going to be great. Have a look at this. I don't have to work, nothing, you know. <laughs> and honestly, very tough time because work, you're, you're making a contribution. You're being useful. You're making yourself useful. You're being of service when you work. And when you don't, you're not. So there's a great book that I've read called Thou Shall Prosper. It's written by a Jewish rabbi. And he talks about the idea of retirement. He says, it's a myth. You know, he's like, it's, it's a really dangerous idea because, you know, if you think about it in, in the analogy of a race, he's like, think about the finish line of a race. What does it make people do? It makes people slow down and stop. And he's like, that's what people do in their lives. They think, oh yeah, push, push, push. And then retirement's coming. I'll start slowing down and then retire and stop. And um, he's like, that's the fastest way to die. Um, yeah. And like, I've actually looked at the history of, um, of retirement. And it's an interesting one. Have you looked at yourself? Do you know where it comes from, the idea? I haven't, no. Yeah, well, it's a guy called Bismarck in Germany. And he was a politician. And he, he was being absolutely conquered by all these older, wiser statesmen all the time. At every turn, they were just outplaying him. And every, everything he was trying to do, he's like, this sucks. Um, how am I going to get rid of these people? <laughs> these guys are too good for me. And so he came up with the idea of passing a law that beyond a certain age, the state would look after you. You don't have to go to work. And he did it to get rid of his opponents, his political opponents. And so it worked. They were all like, oh, sweet. We don't have to work anymore. And at that time, the age of retirement was like, I think it was 57 or around 60. And that was like two years and you die anyway. Yeah. And, and then America picked it up. They took it, popularized the idea, and then it sort of, it sort of kind of went from there. The way we think about retirement today isn't really what, how it started at all. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And like, I've even read a few things, and, and I, I'd love a book if, if anyone out there listening can recommend one. But what, there was some quote, or there was something that was said around the time of the Industrial Revolution that if you looked at how much people were earning and what they were able to provide their family. And then that whole revolution happened. There was some, I think there was some professor or someone made the case that you could potentially retire super early or you, you could have enough savings to live the rest of, you, of your life because of all these advance, advances in technologies that are coming up. And that was 100% true. But what that um, professor didn't factor in is consumerism and people spending more money on more things to yep. be so popular as it um, turned out to be. So the same person earning uh, the same amount of money, but being able to not spend money on, on a whole bunch of other stuff that they needed to do for their family because of advances in technology, they use that surplus of income to just buy other things and, and really smart marketing people, I guess, clued onto the fact that, that people have more disposable income now and I can sell them more things that they don't really need, but because mm. they have that disposable income, they're probably you know, going to start buying it and I'm going to put all this money in to try to convince people that they need a flashier car or a new suit that costs twice as much and it might have some fancy material or something like that. And that mm. sort of has snowballed so much into today's society that I, I actually, there's, there's been some really good blog posts written about how the fire community and the, the, the concept of retiring early is is almost a pushback against that, against mass consumerism and mass marketing and people turning around and be like, hold on, we, we don't actually need all this shit that you're trying to sell us. And if we are a bit frugal and we can save our money, it's actually 
not as hard to retire early as people make it out to be because a whole bunch of stuff that people buy, these big houses, these fancy cars, these you know $1,500 phones, whatever it is, if you cut all that crap out, you've actually got a whole bunch of disposable income and you've actually like Australians or anyone in the first world country, we are actually exceptionally wealthy compared to everyone else in the world. If you're from New Zealand, Australia, Sweden, America, you know, UK, all these first world countries, you're already in the top 2% or something in the world's wealth, just born, just being a part of this country. It's only that it's only the, the standards that people set in society that sort of dictate how much people are meant to spend and how much they should be spending on things. And yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. And I feel like the, the fire movement has sort of looked at that and said, hold on, we don't actually need all that stuff. And now what happens when we don't spend all that money? Holy shit. We can amass this absolute fortune in a relatively short period of time, like 10 or so years, which is, is really short in the grand scheme of things. And then we get to this magical point where we reach financial independence. And then we can move on to start doing meaningful work in whatever field we choose, which yeah. is, it's a powerful concept. And I think that's why it's, it's been so popular and it's touched a lot of people that, that truly understand what they're reading. Yeah, absolutely. Have you read Vicky Robbins' Your Money or Your Life? Mm. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I should, I should probably should have touched on that. It's probably, yeah, because that's, that's the book that a lot of people say started the movement because that was written in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and Mr. Money Moustache actually, yeah, he, he read that. And if you read that, yes, that's probably the starting point. But I, I, I don't know. She was pretty popular, I guess. Like she was on Oprah, Oprah Winfrey and stuff like that. But I don't know what happened to her teachings because it sort of went, it might've been popular. I just definitely didn't read about it. And I think the fire community has, has taken whatever concept was in that book and sort of elevated it to new levels. But yeah, the reason I, the reason I mentioned the book is because I'm pretty sure that that book goes into detail around that, I guess the, the explosion of consumerism and, and sort of links it back to the industrial revolution and says, yeah, the industrial revolution was so good because it did create all this new wealth. But the other problem that it created was a surplus of products and services. And if you have a surplus of products and services, you have a need for marketing because if there's no choice to make, then you just have to choose what you've got. But if you now have choice to make, we've got to outmarket and outwit. We've got to convince you in all these clever ways that you need the thing that we've just created. And um, so it was sort of like a double-edged sword, you know, like it set people free, but it also enslaved us at the same time. That's really uh, the, the key point. Well, yeah, it definitely did. But it's not like, like people can, it, if you understand what's going on, you, you can um, make the decision for yourself. Like, I think that's the most important thing, like just making informed decisions and realizing what spending 60 grand on a brand new ute is actually costing you as a yeah. 19, 20 year old kid, you know, doing a trade. Like yeah. there's too many people and I, you know, I fell into a trap a little bit as well, but like how many financial financial conscious 18 year olds are out there unless you've come from a i I guess unless your parents have really taught you the value of the dollar um a lot of these companies prey on these these young people to take on credit card debt and take on massive car loans and even people in their early 20s that are are buying ridiculous houses that that have a million dollar mortgages or you know eight hundred thousand dollar mortgages and it might not be 10 15 years uh, down the track until these people realize what they were actually giving up at that point in time when they did that, which is a bit, bit unfortunate. It sounds absurd when you think about, when you talk about it like that, doesn't it? And, uh, 
we don't like we're not taught this stuff i think in australia I, I particularly was quite annoyed when i started to really started to learn this stuff for myself i'm like why did no one ever sit me down and tell me this is how money works this is what the game is and because if they did i would have played this game much better much sooner yeah and you know it's, it's a tough one because it's a free country you know what i mean like it's there would never ever be it'd be such a hard thing to you know pass into law or something that's you know someone's got a I don't know, pass a financial test before they can take a loan or something like that. It's just, it's too many politics come into play there, but it does make you wonder. Yeah. Um, I just, why it's think, not being taught in school. Yeah. Sorry. I just kind of think like, you know, that to me is the perfect practical use of simple math. It's, oh. it's an interesting topic, isn't it? And it's, I think everyone says that. And I'd love to know the reason why the education system doesn't do it. Like my, my partner's a teacher. Yeah. And yeah, like she, she actually, she told me a few years ago that, that coding is going to be a huge thing in the curriculum coming up. Like they're yeah. introducing coding to grade two, grade three or whatever it is. And it, it, it's going to be a point that they want it to be at the same level as like mass going forward, which yeah. I understand that, especially from an IT background, like, okay, that's really cool that they're doing that because a lot of the, a lot of things are coming you know, a, a lot of the, the biggest companies in the world are tech giants and it's sort of, that's the way it's going in the automation and shit like that. But God, it does make you wonder what is the hurdle that like, why can't they teach a basic finance 101, loans 101, credit card debt 101, like just do six months of it somewhere between <laughs> grade six and year 12. Like how can they not fit that in? I think they are trying to, it might be New South Wales. I did read that they're trying to do some more of that stuff um, and make it compulsory, but not accessible for, for kids. But it's just, yeah, like it's taken till now. I mean, I, to me, if you would have said to me, look here, I'm going to give you the life, the number one life skill that you need. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to give it to you on a platter. Here it is. Cause I'm like, you know, I used this analogy last week with Ryan. It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. I was like, you know, if you don't understand how to budget, save and invest, it's almost like growing up in the wild without knowing how to trap and hunt for, for food. It's like, mm. it's like you're, you're, you're forever going to struggle your whole life if you can't do this stuff. So for me, I'm like that, that, that has to be some of the most valuable education and knowledge and training that you could give someone. Absolutely. And I credit my parents fully for everything, not everything, but probably 90% of stuff I know about money comes from them. And the very last bit, I had to go to the internet to, to learn a whole bunch of stuff about like investing in um, passive index funds and stuff like that. But honest, honestly, that is really the small part of the, the equation to reach financial independence, in my opinion. Yeah. So much is focused on the theories behind why to invest this way, international diversification, risk tolerance, all that good stuff, which is important. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the bulk of my learning and I would say the bulk the, the most important part is knowing knowing the value of the dollar and saving money that saving to be able to save money and to be able to allocate where your money goes is super important and and even having having the the resilience to buy uh, like a, a Povo brand shoe or something as a teenager mm. and to be able to rock those at school and knowing that you're sort of, you're setting yourself up later in life or you, you've got some financial 
uh, toughness. I don't know if that's even the right terminology, but it, there's a resilience, resiliency in your character is what, and I credit that to my, my dad a lot growing up. He, he comes from an Italian background and I feel as though that's the immigrant mentality. Like he's my nonna and nonna immigrated from um, Italy and it's just a completely different mentality that they had. They were scraping to save every single dollar that come into their account and everything was so precious and they needed to save money in their mind to survive, I guess. And then they come to an abundant country like Australia and they can make a really good life for themselves. But, but that immigrant mentality is instilled in my father and he instilled that in me to a certain degree. I don't know if it was as hardcore as um, my grandparents, but I, I feel like that's the more important lesson. Like all, all the the fancy investing theories and everything are really nice and it's, it's, it's important to understand how the stock market works and everything. But no, make no mistake about it. The, the savings part is really the bread and butter um, towards financial strength, in my opinion. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> we get people reaching out to us all the time because you know, the podcast is Passive Income Project. And mm. um, you know, I had one guy reach out to us a couple of months ago. He's like, man, I really want to get involved in your program, um, but I can't afford it. What investments should I choose? And I was like, dude, if you cannot afford the program, you got no right to be talking about investing. <laughs> like, you, honestly, this the, the cost of this program should be a sliver of what you have. <laughs> you know? So I think a lot of people think that investing is going to solve their savings problem. And it's just not. It, it's, it's really the last piece of the puzzle. It yeah. Is, like, it, it really is. You need to have, like, you know, we always say it in the, the fire community, there's, there's the old, old wisdom of savings, emergency savings fund, which is usually like anywhere between, well, it depends how much expenses you have, but we have like 25 grand in, in our, just our offset account that we can draw upon if for whatever reason, if we lose our jobs or an emergency happens, you know, we've got that money as dry powder and that makes me sleep very well at night. Yep. And then- you save, you keep saving more than you earn and any surplus that you have, then you start investing in whatever asset class that you feel comfortable with. And there is no perfect answer for investments, but yeah. having, yeah, having the, having the ability to save money is that, that is really 95% of the battle. Like if you can't save money, yeah, like you said, do not ever think that investing is going to get you out of trouble because it's not that, that should be the the cream on top that that should be the the end step and then it's just a matter of continuing that step and letting your investments compound over time and then time does the heavy lifting that's a, that's an important factor and then eventually you get to a point where holy shit i don't have to wake up and go to a job ever again because my portfolio has grown to an absolute beast size and it's thrown off more money that i can actually earn in my job yep. and that's the, that's the end goal that's the end goal for, for the fire community but even anyone that wants to improve their financial position, even having your portfolio throw off a little bit of money, even 5% of your yearly expenses, 10% of your yearly expenses, it will do wonders for your psyche, especially if you're coming from a position where maybe you've, you've been in trouble uh, with money before. Building up that emergency fund, having a portfolio, having that portfolio pay you, it's just it's yeah, magic, it's something that everyone should experience. 
Yeah, I agree. It's magic. It was, that was the thing that allowed me to kind of think very differently about the next choice I could make, what was available to me in terms of how I could live my life. It was, it wasn't even a huge sum of money, honestly. It was just like, oh, hang on, money can make money. (laughs) And and then, and then you start thinking about it and then like it does something weird to your brain. Well, it did something weird to my brain as I don't know about anyone else, but you start thinking about every single dollar you start spending and you're like, hold on, I could, I could spend 40 grand on a car yep. or I could spend 20 grand on it. I'm like, oh, it's still a decent car and I can yep. use that other 20 and I put it in the markets and then that could give me money. So yep. every, every single dollar you, you, you spend in, you start thinking, do I actually need to spend this? Because yep. this little dollar could go into my, it's like an employee. I think all my dollars is like my workers and I could throw that dollar into the mines and this goes working for me and it digs out a little diamond. And, and, you know, throws it at me every quarter of the year in the dividend. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Once you have an army of workers, you have, have, a, have a horde of workers, that, that's, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful concept. And your workers create more workers. It's, it's yeah, it's very, it's a, it's a power of um, compound interest. Yeah, oh, I love that analogy. That's a good one. So I think, I, I think when we get questions like that, it just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what the market is. To me, I just see it as a place that I can rent my money. The growth you cannot count on until and unless you are investing for decades. And so I think a lot of people, they think if I buy into the market now, and this is particularly what's happened with coronavirus, people have been pretty opportunistic, which I think is great. But there's this, it feels like there's this sense that if I get in now, I'll be rich in a year. (laughs) Um, It's not the case. It's, it's, as you say, like 90, 95% of, of the work that needs to get done is this consistent saving. It's just that um, it's not sexy. So a lot of people would rather talk about asset allocation and get into the mental masturbation side of investing. It's such a shame as well, because yeah, like, uh, you know, I've got a um, Facebook group, the Aussie Fire Discussion Group, and most of the members in there, they always bring up investing questions, which is fine. If you want to learn about investing, okay, like people will answer it, but holy moly, you make most money by making smart decisions on what you spend your money on guarantee it so if you even looked at all your loans if you've got home loans and you look at lenders and everything like that and you swap your home home loan you you probably save more money than you would have if you'd earn like depending on how big your portfolio is but if you've earned like two extra percent in performance which is outrageously like it's a lot that's a lot in a portfolio performance sense you earn an extra two percent doing all this groundwork you know, all these strategies, these invest, investing portfolios and, and looking at everything, all the, the company's books, you are, you're, you're probably no better off than you were by maybe not going to the pub four times a year. You know what I, mean? like, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yep. Saving money is, is, that is, that is really the secret ingredients. Yep. It's just that the investing side is definitely needed and we are lucky. We are blessed to live in a day and age where investing is outrageously easy, but it's a bit clouded because there's so much shit going on out there and back to the marketing. So many people put spins on different products. It can be overwhelming. You're not sure you know, yep. what to invest in. I get that. So you need to go down that journey. That's a journey that everyone needs to go down on because you can't, you can't read a blog article. You can't listen to a podcast where they say something and then you just believe it's the gospel. You need to put the time and effort in because if you don't and, and the market crashes, 
that's probably the people that won't be able to sleep at night because they're going to be thinking, shit, I just followed this guy that I, I, I just listened to this guy that, you know, did a podcast and he told me to invest in Vanguard index fund. I didn't actually do the research to understand what the hell that is, how yeah. it works. Does it go up and down? So I'm panicking now. I can't sleep, you know, and now I'm going to sell all my portfolio at the bottom of the market. That's yeah. the important side of the investing. You need to understand, you need to put the hard work in. It doesn't take that long. Like, you know, it, it really doesn't take that long, but yeah, savings where it's at for sure. Yeah. I reckon if you read three books, if you read Thornhill's Motivated Money, if you read Little Book of Common Sense Investing, probably Random Walk Down Wall Street, you probably know, you're probably going to be pretty like enough educated to now start making some decisions about what to do with yeah. your money. Would you, yeah, would you add any, any books to that or any, um, any places? Yeah. The Boggleheads Guide to Investing um, is a good one for, for me. And that's if you want to invest in the share market. Like, yeah. like I said, it doesn't, there is no perfect investment. And I know that it's so funny because people, there's camps, right? Ideologies. Well, yeah, there's people that are, that live in the property camp and that will never admit that the share market is a good investment. But then also there's people that live in the share market camp that will never admit that property can be a good investment. Yep. Now I've invested in both and they've both got their pros and cons, but I haven't invested. I've never invested in other asset classes. I don't invest in bonds. I haven't invested like directly in precious metals or anything like that or indirectly, I guess, through, through the index fund, but there is... It, it, there is no perfect investment. And really at the end of the day, as long as it, it pays you some, some form of income, whether that be rent, whether that be dividends, it, it doesn't matter as long as you understand it and you can sleep at night and be comfortable with your investment, then that's fine. Op, you can do more reading and optimize it and that's all good. But the investment really, it doesn't matter as much as people think it matters. Yeah. You need to save money. You need to invest it invest a surplus and you'll get to a point no matter what you invest in hopefully like it needs to be a solid investment but you need to understand it you'll get to a point where it's still enough it's still enough enough money where you can reach financial independence yeah and that 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 is the that's where the psychological part of it is more important than the maths not everyone life doesn't live in a spreadsheet you need to be comfortable with your investments yeah i'm glad you said that and i think your episode um, property V shares. I found that to be one of the most edifying podcasts that I've listened to purely because you are so balanced about it. I 100% agree that we live in camps and I'll admit my proclivity is towards shares because I have, a, I have a bias towards optionality and the thought of real estate for me, particularly my home, buying a home for me, it makes me feel like oh, that's, there's a huge opportunity cost for that for me. So I'm actually going to do it, but I'm going to do it the opposite way around. So I've got the money in the market and I'm going to get that to a point. And once I've got that to that point, then I'm going to go and, and, and buy my property after that. It's almost like an upside down approach, you know? So instead of you know, doing that as my first, big, my first big decision, I made the investing decision first. And then because I know that time's going to do the heavy lifting for me, it'll continue to do that heavy lifting, even though I'm going to have to be putting money towards a mortgage later. And so... That, that's my question for you is like, you're probably one of the few people actually having to come across anybody else um, in the finance space that is very balanced and very neutral about both sides. Is there a, like, could you put your finger on why that is like why you are more balanced about it than, than most people? Yeah, possibly. I'll, 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 I'll try to attempt to answer this, but 
I would say majority of people that are anti-property have either been burnt by property before or they've never tried it. That's reason one. Mm -hmm. And majority of people that are anti-shares have had the same thing. Has they have either never tried shares or have been stung before. They've they've bought ten thousand dollars of one company, it's gone bankrupt and they've lost all their money and they've just dusted their hands and said, Shares is shit house, don't ever do it. <laughs> yeah. Casino, right? Yeah. So like those sort of, like I've been lucky because my property my I've only sold one. I've got two more um in Queensland. The first one did very well. And it was not because I'm an investing genius. It was because Melbourne boomed. Like there was a few things I'd like to think that I did to improve the the price, but it was majority of the reason that it went up was because the whole um, real estate, you know, anyone looking at real estate prices in the last 10 years realize it's gone up. But so I've I've done quite well, but I would say that realistically, 95% of people aren't suited to be property investors. So when they do invest in property and it doesn't work out as well as they hoped, they they just assume that it was the asset class's fault that it, mm. it that, that 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 they didn't get as good of a return as they they were hoping. Mm. Whereas shares, well, passive investing per se, really, that is probably the most optimal way for people to invest. For ninety five percent of Australia, I'm just throwing numbers out here. I have no idea, but I'm just my opinion. Most people are going to do better investing in a passive style index fund because they don't need to do anything and they, they don't need to do the research and um, the hard work required to be successful in property. And you don't necessarily have to do that to be successful in property. But in my experience, and I read a whole bunch of property books and I went to all the seminars, like I was right into it. It wasn't like I was, I just bought a property and hoped it went up. Like all of I did renovations, like I was, I was into it heavily. Yep. But then I realized that, that shares also have some advantages that property doesn't have, like the flexibility of selling some units, getting the dividends, not having to put as much effort into the investing, not dealing with tenant headaches, all that jazz. So I think I'm more suited. We are like have transitioned to our stage in life to be more suited to be a passive investor. And the share market enables us to do that more than property does. Mm. So I think that's the reason. I wanted to add something to that, but I can't remember. I can't think of, I might come back to that, but yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, I think it's a great story and, and it's one I refer to often because I always say, look, keep listen to, listen to that podcast because this person's come from both sides and understands both camps really well. Whereas for me, you know, my, predominantly all my experience has been in the passive investing and it's probably just a self-awareness thing for me, just knowing, okay. And, and I guess part of it for me was also understanding career-wise what the risks were for me in sport very fickle very fickle career you have one two-year contracts you never got any sense of security and for me signing up to a 30-year loan under those conditions it just didn't feel smart and so i always sort of say look you know if you're thinking about the property stuff go and listen to that have a have a think about it from both sides and try to understand yourself to me that's the biggest most important thing is understand yourself really well yeah, you, you've just re- sorry to interrupt. You've just reminded me that that was the last point I wanted to make. Was a lot of people can never, for whatever reason, they just can't get their head around how shares work. Whereas property is probably a little bit easier to understand, just because it's a 
It's a tangible asset. You can see it, you can feel it. You, you know, someone goes in there, they pay you rent. Like that's really easy to understand. And that's a key point that like a lot of people think, it, you know, both camps are superior to one, one or the other, but a lot of like pro share people, and I'm a pro share person. I have he, a whole bunch of money in shares and I think they're great. Um, they think that shares is superior even when, if someone doesn't understand the asset class, it, it's not going to work for them potentially. It doesn't matter how good shares return or it doesn't matter the performance of the, the portfolio. If they don't understand how it works and they get spooked in a downturn like coronavirus and the market's crashing and then they sell their shares, how is that good to them? Like it's, mm. it, it's more investing is more uh, psychology than it is math. Yeah, and the psychology so. of the invest in the investment is the most important part in, in my opinion. And that's why I said it doesn't particularly matter what you invest in. If you, if you understand ostrich farms really well, yeah. and that's your investment. And if it works out for you, then awesome. Good yeah. for you. It, like it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't affect me at all. Like if these people argue one way or the other, I don't know why they're putting so much energy into it because like, who cares? Yeah. But like it, it really, the, the most important part is the person understands the investment. And I would encourage everyone listening out there to understand the share market because it is, it's an awesome investment. And like I said, we're, we're blessed to live in 2020 where investing is so bloody easy. You can invest on your phone yeah. and get these dividends, you know, four times a year, just magically appear in your account. Like, oh my God, if you, if you told someone that 300 years ago, like if you, if you told an investor even 100 years ago, 50 years ago that you could do this, their mind would be blown. So we live in that day and age, but it's really important that you understand the share market. Yeah, that's, I agree. That's what I say on that. Well, it's just how the world works. It's how it's how the world is allocating its resource of money. And money is that time that everybody's spent. And that's the thing that we've traded that time for. So I always kind of say, look, it's the rules of the game. And if you don't know the rules of the game, like you're just a pawn in somebody else's game. So, sure. and and it's honestly not, it's not that hard to get your head around once you just, if you go to the right places, as I say, like just learn from the right people, listen to the right I'll, people. I'll start, start with those books. Anyone out there that's listening that like has maybe, you know, got interested in this conversation. I, I would, if you list those books in the show notes, Terry, I think that would be a great starting point because those books have decades of um, experience and information in them. Like consume those books, go down the rabbit hole a bit further, but it, it is honestly, not as confusing as um, some people think. And I, I thought that. I, I thought it was a casino. Mm. You know, you so, did money, so did I. So did I. You might win some and you might lose. Yeah. Uh, if you said that, if you had talk, spoken to me, let's say seven years ago, and you would say, and you said, hey, 80% of your net worth is going to be tied up in the share market. I'd be like, I've lost my mind. Oh. Yeah, get it get out. Sell, sell. <laughs> I've lost my mind. Like, what happened to me? It's so. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a turnaround and what I usually find and, and, you know, we do a lot of education in our program is the more educated you get, the more your um, risk tolerance changes and mm. the more, and, and the analogy I always give is, you know, I do a little bit of surfing and you think about a Bell's beach or a winky pop type wave. These are like world-class surf type waves and you know, they're scary when you're starting out. And if you go to that beach, which I did when I was starting out and you get smashed, you, you're likely to think that surfing is a dangerous sport. But if you work your way up to it from easier waves, easier breaks, you start to learn the lay of the land, 
then you get to it. It actually doesn't seem intimidating at all. It can be your home break. And that's, that, that's the same with investing. It's just doing what's required to get to the point where you have the competence and confidence to make those decisions. And as you start to collect the evidence that, oh, hang on, I just invested the money and the world didn't cave in. Um, oh, fine. Excellent. <laughs> as you start to collect more of that evidence, you can start to relax about it. For sure. It's, it's like, you know, the more you, the more you learn, the more you earn. Yep. Is a you know that proverb, and it's so true with with anything in life. It's not just investing, but with with most things, like your surfing analogy, there, it's just about learning it. And and we are so lucky that there's so many amazing resources like this podcast that you can listen to and learn about these things for free. And if you want to go down the rabbit hole further, you can invest to go down further. But like the internet is an amazing tool. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you as well, you do quite a good job of, I guess, documenting your strategies and you talk about them and you sort of talk about them in terms of evolutions. And so you're very open-minded in that sense and you're bringing people along the way, uh, along the journey, which I really like. But I wanted to ask you, so you've, you've had a few pivots, you've gone real estate and then you've gone you know, more passive towards income investing. And, then, and I've heard you talk more about you know, being more in Australia and less overseas with your investments as well. How do you justify a change in strategy? So what needs to be true for you to say, hang on, these things have happened. I'm now going to adjust my approach. What's your thinking process when you say, okay, okay, that was all fine, but now I'm going to do this. Yep. Good question. So I'd, I'd really say that I've really throughout my life and me and my partners uh, investing in life, we've really only pivoted majorly three times so when I first started saving money I didn't have any idea what I was saving money for I just I I was in you know just had a tendency to save money this is the immigrant mentality I feel coming out um (laughs) if I I had it you know if I earned 50 bucks I'd save 25 or something like that and my first investment really went when I think about it was just a savings account that was like, you know, put it in there, you get some interest, like, oh, cool, money just made money. Wow. And then I got my first job and I started earning decent money. Still didn't really know what I was saving for, but I was saving. And then I wanted to be smart because people were, you know, or parents, uncles, family, friends were always like, you know, buy a house, the Australian dream, you know, set yourself up for life, buy an investment property. So I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to set myself up for life. I had no idea what it meant, but I bought a house. I bought an investment property. And so that was the second sort of investment, excuse me. And I remember, so the story is like, I think I had that investment property for maybe under a year. And then I thought, Jesus, I've just got a huge amount of debt to my name. I don't, I didn't really know what I did it for. Like I just did it because other people told me to. I should start really start reading about this. And that's where my journey towards uh, reading about financial independence and reading property investing books, that's where it really began. And then later on, I learned about the stock market. So I invested in property. And then when I read about the stock market, um, and I want, I want to preface this whole answer with, I'm no investing genius by any, any means necessary. Like some people, you know, some of the emails that I get, you would think that I'm some Nobel prize winning economist <laughs> that knows everything. Like I'm probably, I'm really simple with my investments, really simple. Like there is no magical formula that everyone's asking me for that. It doesn't exist. Well, if it does, 
some really smart dude in a hedge fund is using that magical formula and he's not telling anyone about it, yeah. um, but I don't have a magical formula. So when I read about the stock market and all these fire people that I'm aspiring to be, I'm going along that journey. They're all investing in the stock market. And I'm like, hold on. There has to be something more about this because all these people that are really smart and I admire are doing this thing. And I started reading up more about it. And I, you know, I do blog about it, the reasons why I changed strategies. But when we went from, we made the big decision to go from property to shares, it, there was a, there was a combination of reasons. Um, one of them was because the lending landscape in Australia changed dramatically. So we had three properties and we went for our fourth, but we maxed out our lending. And so it sort of was like a roadblock. It was like a bump in the road and we couldn't invest in any more properties. So the original plan for anyone listening that doesn't know was like, we, we wanted to get to 10 properties. It was, it was a classic plan. 10 properties, um, wait 10 years, sell five and live off the other five. I think that's, you know, being written about it, a whole bunch of books and it works. Like if some people can do that and it's, I'm not saying it doesn't work, but we hit the roadblock of the, the lending block. And I started reading more about the share market and it just clicked with me a lot more. I was like, I either go down the property route and it can work. I'm not saying it can't. It just, you, you load up on all this debt. And the, the, the biggest thing for me, the, and the, mate, the biggest reason we changed was because the property route relies, and especially Australian property, whereas US it's different. And this is like, this is the thing. All these bloggers in the US, they write about property, but it's different in the US. Property is cash flow and shares is capital growth, whereas yep. the complete opposite here in Australia, it's complete opposite. So it's funny how, you know, if you listen to international podcasts, sometimes it can be a bit confusing. But anyway, property in Australia only works when you sell the property. So you're like, you basically break even, or if you buy in Melbourne or Sydney, you're probably paying money out of your own pocket to keep that property. And then you sort of go 10 years down the track. And then you sell with the hope being that you've sold for all this, all these gains. And that style of investing never really felt right to me. I felt like investing should be, you add a little bit to the snowball. It keeps rolling down the hill. You keep adding to the snowball. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And with the share market, that was a lot more the case with the share market. You, you had nothing and then you bought a bundle of shares and then you keep buying a bundle of shares. And then four times a year, the bundle of shares gives you money and you can buy more shares. So that snowball is rolling down the hill and the compound interest every single year is getting bigger and bigger. Well, that until the coronavirus hit and then it shrank massively. But um, <laughs> that, yeah, that's like the, the seventh worst crash in the history of the stock market. But so just the, the philosophy and the, 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 and again, we're going back to the psychology of investing. It sat better in my brain to invest like that. And I spoke about it with, with a Miss Firebug and she, you know, she understands the investing to a certain degree, I guess, but she's not, she, you know, this stuff doesn't um, interest her as much as it interests me. So um, <laughs> I'm trying to like, I was like, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, honest, honestly, you know, one o'clock just because I was thinking and like get out the calculator, calculator on my phone, like start it, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, if we do this and divide it by the 4% rule and she'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is the sad life that I lived. And it just, it made more sense to me. So I guess to answer your question, there isn't really, like there isn't any hard or fast rules that needs to be hit before I, before I pivot. As you said, when something makes sense to me and it, it, it seems better than what I'm currently doing, I'm happy enough to shift. 
And like I said, there was only three massive pivots. But then when we went to shares, there was smaller tweaks. I'm going to call them tweaks. They weren't like massive changes because I would say going from real estate to the share market is a massive change. But going from a 40% Australian-based equities allocation and 60% international to a 70% Australian-based allocation, 30% international is not a major change. Some people might view it as a major change, but I would say that's a tweak. And the reason for that is because I I like the idea of receiving um, dividends over capital growth. And there's a whole raging debate, like don't even get me started on which one's better if you fall into this tax bracket. Like again, you got to go back to the point, it really doesn't matter that much if you boil it down to it. Even if you get two, three, four, 4% extra, if you think about 4%, you, if you've got a hundred hundred thousand dollar snowball, and you get a four percent extra return, okay, you've made an extra four grand, right? Yeah. If you bought if you bought a car for twenty grand and you didn't buy the forty thousand dollar car, guess how much money you've just made? Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. it's the, the saving money. There's a lot more bang for your buck is saving money than there will be with uh, picking the absolute optimal investment. I'm not saying it's not important. Do your research and invest accordingly, but. It didn't really, it's not, I'm not losing any sleep going from the different allocations in my portfolio. And if something looks cool, then I'll try it. And it's not the end of the world. Everyone makes mistakes. I've definitely made mistakes and I'll probably continue making mistakes, but you know, I log it, I I blog about it, you know, along the journey. And if you read it, you can see the mistakes that I made personally, but it might not be a mistake that either you will make or that you'll even consider a mistake. You might think that's a good thing or it's a bad thing. It's, it's all circumstantial yeah the reason i point that out is i think what i like about it is that your number one commitment is to the goal it's to the end in mind it's not to any one particular path and the main focus is saving you know that saving is the thing but the vehicle or the vehicles the path the pathway can and should change according to your life according to your values according to what's in front of you at the time and i think I love that modeling because I think a lot of people think, you know, they're going to find the one thing and then they don't have to worry about it again. Um, But the truth is you're always course correcting towards your goal. It's just how it works. So it's not, I don't think it's flaky at all. I think it's actually shows a level of open-mindedness, a commitment to the, to the right thing, which is actually what you're trying to achieve. Like I said, some people live in a spreadsheet and just life just does not work like that. Mm. So you can't, you can't, model psychological behavior well maybe you can (laughs) maybe there's a a statisticians or like you know data analyst out there cringing right now but in my head you can't factor that in to the spreadsheet and people need to be comfortable and you can't really put a dollar figure on that so again you know it's yeah things will chop and change life changes yeah yeah hey you touched on mrs firebug there in 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 one of your part of one of those answers i'd love to just dig into that just for a second um it, you, you sort of mentioned she's not as in, in interested in this as you but are you guys on the same page with regards to i guess that goal that end mind and and is she is into the saving side of it as you are <laughs> yeah good question we are on the same page a hundred percent and i this was just pure luck on my behalf there is a you know, there's a bit of a proverb in the fire community. I think it's a Peter Thornhill quote where like, if you get, if you get two people that are spenders, that can work, you know, like that's fine. 
you get two people that are savers, that's perfect. That's great. You're going to be able to save money and you're on the same page. Where it breaks down is if you get someone that's a spender and someone that's a saver, that is a recipe for disaster because no matter how you look at it, they're, they're two people on two different tracks and they, they go, they're going the opposite way. Now, I'm sure that there's a saver and a spender in heaps of relationships, um, but the the financial goal, and if we're talking purely from a financial perspective, they'll be working against each other. So I was blessed when me and Mrs. Forhaber got together that we're just on the same page. She's just a natural born saver like I am. She's not at the same level as, as, as a saver as what I was, because at the start of my journey, I was a little bit obsessed. Like I could there's a few stories that I'm not exactly proud of. Um, to, to I was a bit, a bit too hardcore at the start of my journey and I've relaxed a lot, but we are on the same page financially. And we're also on the same page just with a lot of other things that are, that are way more important than finances, like just in, in general in life and kids and everything like that, the direction of where we want to go in life. And finances plays a big part. Like, you know, some people, they, they brush it off like it doesn't, but it, you know, I, I, I think that's a that's not true. I think finances does play a big part in every relationship, no matter how which way you look at it. So she was a natural saver. I'm a natural saver. It, it worked out, but I've got really that's as about as far as I can go with relationship advice because I'm I'm not a relationship um, counselor or anything. And sometimes <laughs> people ask me these questions like, "How do you get your girlfriend to you know um, save money and stuff?" I'm like, "Dude, I don't know. Like, we it just worked out. I I, I have no um, experience where it doesn't work out. So I can't really help you. I don't know what to say to, you know, I convince your missus to, to make her lunch every day and not spend money on buying it or something like that. So I was, I got lucky is, is pretty much the answer to that. Yeah. It's an interesting one. I think it, it, there's uh, good for you. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But you know, I've heard Peter talk about that and you know, we, we deal with this a lot in our program. We usually have one person who's right into it. And, and they're bringing the other person along for the ride. And I would disagree with Peter Thornhill's assertion that you've, you, you spender and saver and you're buggered. Bad luck. The problem is that people don't have a compelling enough future vision to work towards together to then do the work to figure out how to save together. They haven't ever had that conversation about what, what that life is they're trying to build. And there's no reason then for the saving. So there's no, if I'm a spender, I don't see the reason. I don't understand that I'm making a trade-off when, I'm, when I use that dollar. And it's, it, relationships are about compromise, right, as well. Like, yeah. well, I think back to the very start of my journey, when I first found out about financial independence, as I said, I was, I was crazy. Like, honestly, it, some of the stories just like, idiot. You know, you don't <laughs> need to say that much. You don't need to, to be that much of a tight ass to get there. Like you're going to get there eventually. It's ridiculous what I was doing, some of the stories, but it was good because me and my partner, she sort of reeled me in a little bit to be more sensible. Yep. And she like the, the most important thing. And again, I don't want to get into like relationship advice or anything because that's not my area of expertise, but um, like you need to be living a great life. It, it, this whole journey means nothing mm -hmm. unless you're enjoying yourself and you're living a good life. And that's what I like. I, I warn people that when you first find out about it or when, whenever you have a goal, you can go a little bit too hard too quick and you can start impacting your quality of life. Like fire to me, the, the, the lifestyle of fire or the idea 
it's a, it's more of a mental change than it is anything else. Like you need to, it's like a psychological change that I value my freedom more than I value a nice watch or more than I value a nice car or something like that, right? And you can make the distinction between how much something is actually costing you and what is costing you now versus what what it's costing the future you and and what you're giving up to to spend that more money. And if you know that and you understand how that works, you can still spend money. Like I still splurge on things now here in London. We 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 go out all the time. We go out to nice restaurants and spend a whole bunch of money. But we know what we're giving up, and we're happy to give that up to because that's the life that we want to live. It's not like you. It's not a race to financial independence. Yeah. By you know, eating out of a dumpster and living on the street. Like no one wants to live that life. Um, it's about changing your mindset that a really, really kick-ass life doesn't actually cost a lot of money and you can cut out a whole bunch of shit and still live a fantastic life and an, an even better life than what is sold to you by these marketing companies. Yeah. Hope that, make, hope that makes sense. But like, yeah, that's, that is our philosophy and we, we've always prioritized a great life or, but also being money conscious whilst trying to live that great life not at the start like i said i was a bit too hardcore but l- like the further along this journey we go we are just living the life that we want to live forever whilst being money conscious and that to me has vibed well with with my girlfriend my fiance actually and ah, uh, cheers. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we, we'd almost be husband and wife, but this coronavirus has sort of thrown a spanner in the works. But that's a whole nother story. Yeah. But uh, yeah, like that's it's an important part. Like both people have to be happy in the relationship, and it's all about compromise. I, I'm more than happy to compromise now to ensure that she's as happy as I am. And even if that means spending a little bit, little bit more money than maybe I personally would have liked, who you know, it does. It's not the end of the world. And the healthy relationship is, is, is way more important than financial independence or any of this saving stuff. So that's what I'll yeah. say about that. No, I think that's a really good point you touch on because you can definitely go too far. And if you do, what you're essentially doing is trading today's years for tomorrow's years. You know, it's a promise of this future, but you're actually, you're costing today. And the truth is, our our younger years are more valuable than our older ones. So, if you if we go too hard, I'd say they're different. I wouldn't. I don't know about valuable, but like I just say, I think every decade is really important. Yeah. But there's, I know, I know the point you're trying to get at. You there, it's not like you can ever be in your twenties ever again. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that's like we're we're over in London now, and I'm thirty now. But when when we moved here, I was in my twenties, late twenties. But you can't ever be in Europe in your twenties ever again. Like unless you go in your twenties, it's a completely yeah. different trip. If you go in your fifties, yeah, you're going to see all the same places, but it's a different trip. So I, I get what you, I get the point you're trying to make, but I would say each decade is as important. It's just different. That, that's yeah. my take on it. Anyway. Well, there are things that you can do when you're young that you cannot do when you're older. And so for me, it's really just, I think there's this, what I'm trying to do is illustrate or, or illuminate this false trade-off that people are making or, or, or it's, all, it's almost a mistaken thinking where it's like, you know, I'll give up today for, for tomorrow instead of saying, no, today can still be great, but we can also be working towards tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like yeah. there's a false choice people are making where you can just go too far and today sucks. 
<laughs> because tomorrow is going to be awesome. And yeah, um, you- it's almost setting up tomorrow to be a disappointment because you're going to be older then. You're not going to be able to do some of those things you're able to do. <laughs> um, and there are choices that will be taken away from you because of the way the, court, the, the, the way that life changes things. You know, you have kids, some choices that you just had before you don't have anymore. That's not right or wrong, but you can do some of those things now. So really the point is, I think, is that, yes, you can enjoy today but be provisioning and looking after the future version of you at the same time. hundred percent. You need to, if, if your, if your journey is, or the way to the end goal, which is, if we're talking purely financial in the fire spaces, the financial independence part, if you're hating life along the journey, then you're doing the journey wrong. It should be, you should be enjoying it and crafting the life that you want to live. And then when you, you reach the finish line and you tick it over, you seamlessly transition to doing work that you love doing without ever having to worry about the financial side of things. That's like the end. That's the the carrot at the end of the race. But if you, if the race almost destroys your soul, then there's no point of getting there and crossing the finish line and just sort of, yeah, having or not have have had lived a great life during during the race. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, mate. You've sort of gotten to a point in your journey now where you're at, where you have a level of financial stability that probably very few 30-year-olds have as a direct result of those choices that you've made and the discipline that you've, you and your partner have exhibited over time. How has this stability impacted your life, your choices, and your career choices? Um, big question, but a great one. It's... There's been, there's been multiple things that have happened in my life that I've been able to fall back on the strength of our financial position to make certain decisions. And I, and I can go through a few examples. So the first one was my very first job out of uni. And I did blog about this a little bit, but I'll, I'll go into it. We, there was a change. It's a classic. This is a, you know, a tale as old as times. There was a management change. And a new manager comes in and they want to throw their weight around. They want to change some stuff. Anyway, I won't go into the specifics, but my job role got changed and I wasn't happy about it. And long story short, and I'm sure a lot of people listening have been through a similar position. You sort of feel like you're backed into a corner and you're forced to do something that you don't really want to do. You're there like, well, you either do it or, you know, you don't have a job, whatever. And I ended up quitting that job and moving to another job at a lower pay. It was a similar sort of job, but I took like a a 12 grand pay cut. And I did that with the full knowledge that we'd built a financial position where I, I could, there wasn't even, it didn't impact us in the slightest having that 12 grand pay cut. Now you could imagine, and there was someone else um, in the division, and I don't know the whole story, but they were in a position where it was a single income earner and they relied, which most people rely on the job. I, I still rely on my job to a certain degree, but they were in a position where, yeah, they, they really couldn't do anything about it. And they, they could get a new job, I guess, but it, it's a completely different mindset that if you're forced into a position where you can't do anything about it versus our position or my position where at worst case scenario, if I quit my job tomorrow, I can still live off the, off the savings that I've built 
for probably the next five years, even at that point when the snowball wasn't nearly to the size it is now in 2020. Back then when it happened, I still had a, a sizable amount of savings. So just knowing that and having that in the back of my head allowed me to sleep a lot easier at night and sort of plot my plan out. I didn't feel like a, you know, a, a, a trapped mouse in a cage or anything like that. I felt like I've got options and now I just need to plan out the options and take the next steps. So that, was, that was the first one. And the second one is the, the second job that I moved to at the end of 2018, I ended up quitting that job to travel around Europe with Mrs. Firebug. And this was a lifelong dream that we'd had. And it was a major roadblock in our journey to fire. It was probably, you know, the worst financial decision we ever made, but <laughs> it was the best decision we ever made. The best. I wish I did it earlier, to be honest, but these things, you know, everything happens for a reason. So all I can say is that we're happy. I was really happy that we did it in 2000, at the end of 2018. It was actually, no, we left Australia at the start of 2019. So at the start of 2019, January, we left and we made our way through Southeast Asia and I, I quit my job back home and I could do that. Like it's such a, it's a pretty, you know, risky thing to do. You quit your job and then I was going to London with absolutely no job set up or anything like that. Mrs. Firebug is a teacher. So the pathway to become a teacher in London from Australia is very mature and very well established. So she pretty much walked into a job straight away. But me, I had to set up my own um, contracting company, like a, a limited company. And I had to try my hand at contracting. And I was a bit nervous because I was like, I'd come from the public sector and I was trying to contract in the private, private sector, which, you know, anyone out there, most people know that public servants sort of have a reputation of, of not working very hard, which to be completely <laughs> honest is probably true. But um, it's a bit of a stigma. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. Your tax dollars are, you know, really working hard. It's a bit of a stigma that I thought, oh, like I don't, I don't know how well I'm going to go here. And I'm from the country. So again, you know, country boy going to a big city, it just, I was a bit nervous about finding a job. But what really, really calms your nerves and what really can make you sleep well at night is having the savings in your back pocket to, to rely on and be like, okay, Again, I literally, literally could not work a day for the next like, you know, three or four years. And at worst, I could sell down everything and like still fund my lifestyle. Now we were never, I never wanted to do that. But the important part is that that was an option. I had options, right? So that played a big part or our financial strength played a huge part to allow me, allow us to make that, to make that jump and to, to, to take that risk. And other than that, like I was in between contracts and we were traveling around and I was still getting dividends when I wasn't working. So it just, it, your life frees up. And I almost say, you know, I stopped working sort of as a corporate drone in 2019. Like when I, when I last did my nine to five day job is really the last time I've actually worked as a sort of a normal job, I'd say like it, all the work that I've done in London was for my own contracting business sort of thing. And it's really been on my own time. It's been really interesting work and we've traveled in between contracts. So yeah, the life that we're living, it's possible to do without building up a big nest egg. But man, let me tell you, it, it, it calms the nerves in between contracts and in between jobs. And when you don't have a job, and that's just the way I'm built. I, I like to know that I've got 
a bit of stability behind me. Maybe some people can make the jump without any money. And I'm sure there are people that do it, but it really freed me up and allowed me to take on these risks that I otherwise wouldn't have done because I knew that I was financially secure to some degree back home. Yep. And what I like about that too is that, you know, the arc of that story is basically, you in your words, corporate drone, but now contracting for yourself, you've gone from, as far as I know, your your income is quite capped and it's quite limited in the public sector. Like it's very clear when you're going to get a pay rise and what for yes. and all that sort of thing. Whereas now working for yourself, you're essentially uncapped in terms of what you can earn. To a is certain that- degree, I guess. Yeah, it's still like I'm still, you know, in the office and there's a day rate and stuff like that. But it's opened my eyes. Like I will say this, it's, man, the just what companies are doing here in London. Like I've worked at a few startups now and it's just unbelievable. Like we, we're going to go back to Australia next year. That's still the plan. And financial independence, we are closing in on it. I know coronavirus is sort of, you know, um, giving us a, a whack and the, the net worth is down, but it really is a matter of when, not if, when we reach the goal. And I just, some of the ideas and some of the stuff that I'm seeing over here in London, I'd love to try to replicate that back home because I've always had um, a desire to start my own business and do just do something fun, do something that I really love doing, but I never sort of knew what I wanted to do. And I'm still trying to formulate that idea. But in the back of my head, I never, ever wanted to risk going into a business because it was going to be too financially risky. I just always been built like that. I'm like, you know, I think there's some stat, like 70% of businesses fail, whatever the stat is. And I thought, no, I just want to work a normal job, like take the safe route, do, do, do what everyone um, else does. But financial independence opens up doors and I feel I could have a crack at something and put a whole bunch of time and effort into it. And even if it failed, it wouldn't impact us financially. And that's the power that financial independence can do. Can It can, as I said at the start, you retire from a job predominantly from earning money and you, you start a career in something you're passionate about and, and, and you want to do something because it has meaning and not 100% of the time that will pay a wage and that's fine because you're financially independent. But then some of the time it will pay a wage, which is also fine. And that's why, you know, I don't really like the word retire in the FIRE acronym, but it's stuck now. We can't, we can't change it because everyone's using it, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a really good point. And it's a really good position to be in. Just quickly, what, what is your FIRE number? Like if you, if you're sort of modeling it out, where, how long do you think you're, how far away? Well, we, so at the moment, our expenses are really high because we're in London. But when we were back home, I tracked the, our expenses religiously and we would sort of fall in the ballpark of around about 50 grand a year. So that's like, sometimes we'd be like 48, sometimes we'd be like 51, 52. So I'm, I'm saying this and again, these things change, but 50 grand was going to be the aiming point of what the portfolio would have to throw off. Not and not. I sort of. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're not, like it's it's closing. Yeah, coronaviruses. I we've got two properties, and we were in the process of selling one, and because we wanted to shift all into equities, but that's sort of gone out the window now. So we'll see how you know how it plays out in the next couple of years. But I reckon three or four years. I couldn't see it taking any longer than that. Touch wood. But um, I reckon we'd need. Uh, a mill over a mill, maybe 1.25 or something to be financially independent. 
Yep. And this isn't factoring in kids though. So yeah. kids is something like where we want to have kids. That's something that we've talked about. But what I don't like to do, I don't like to, I don't like to factor too many things in that, that aren't actually reality right now. So we do want to have kids, but whether or not we have kids, it might be a whole different story. So I don't want to, want to put pressure on anyone. And like, this is our fine number as of right now, which is around about one, 1 1.2 million, but that might change in the future. And if it does, it will be reflected on the blog, but that is what we're aiming for at the moment. That's a, mate, it's been an inspiring to watch and it's been really, really, I guess, edu- edifying uh, from, from our perspective and you, really useful for, for us and our members too. So really appreciate you coming on um, and being so generous with your time, talking through your story because as I said to you in the email, we'd really just love to get more people um, involved in this and, and, and open more people up to, to what is possible. And I think your story is, it does that absolutely. So Thanks so much for your time. No worries. It's been a pleasure, Terry. Thanks for inviting me on. And just before we go quickly, where can people for, find out more about you? And do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about? Yeah, so my, my blog is probably the best place to start. It's aussiefirebug.com. You can Google it, Aussie Firebug. It will show up as well. I blog. That website is our journey towards financial independence so we can retire early. I also run a podcast, the Aussie Firebug, Firebug podcast, which you can get anywhere you get your podcasts. And what I do with that is I try to uh, interview people that have already reached financial independence or are on their way and occasionally businesses that I find interesting that can help you and that are in the financial independence, independence space. And as far as what, I'm, what I've got coming up, nothing really, not, no big announcements or anything. We post our monthly net worth update every month. And I try to get out of podcasts when I can. It's been pretty busy because we've been doing so much traveling in during the last 12 months. But during COVID, we've sort of been in the house majority of the time. So hopefully I can get a few articles out. But uh, yeah, nothing major coming up. And check out the website if you want to know more. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Okay, I hope you guys took as much from that conversation as I did. The number one thing I get from the Aussie firebug, Matt, is that is absolutely possible and it's within our grasp um, if we just stick to what matters and avoid being distracted by what doesn't. Now, apologies. I know my voice is probably a little bit deeper than usual, and that's because I recorded this podcast at about 4.40 a.m. this morning. So apologies for that. But if you got value from it, please Share this podcast with somebody who you've had a discussion about this stuff with recently. Rate this podcast if you want to tell us what you liked about it or what you want to see more of, uh, because we are paying attention to those and we're really getting a lot from those people that are reaching out to us and telling us what they like. So if that's you, keep doing it because we keep creating content just for you. In the meantime, hope you're all well and see you soon.